This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, scientists are learning more about the Zika virus and its potential harm, and they're getting more concerned. And the science is starting to indicate that there are more potential threats to unborn children whose mothers become infected with the virus. The link to microcephaly has already been confirmed, but there are also some additional birth defects being blamed on Zika exposure in utero. Uh, These include sight and hearing impairment, as well as mental retardation, not specifically related to microcephaly. And I noticed in some of the CDC releases, they're really hearkening back to the days of uh, rubella and German measles, epidemics we haven't Mm. thought about in a long, long time. Quite scary. And the scope of the neurological illness in those adults uh, who are infected with Zika is also a growing concern. As epidemiologists gather more evidence from the afflicted areas of Latin America and the Caribbean, and we're starting to see a number of cases in the United States. About 600 cases reported in this country so far, Mark, but all to date being attributed to exposure to the virus uh, in people who were traveling abroad and bringing it back to the U.S. But experts are cautioning it's only at the tip of the iceberg. Public health officials are bracing for the arrival of the mosquito breeds known to carry the virus in later spring into summer, and much of the country is expected to be impacted by late summer. The president has asked for $1.9 billion in emergency funds to help confront the threat of Zika's arrival in America, but so far, Congress has failed to act on this request. Not willing to wait for the action, though, the White House has shifted about $500 million from the Ebola Preparedness Fund to help the Zika effort. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, who we've had on this show recently, told us there is no time to waste in order to be prepared. Well, Dr. Fauci is leading the efforts at the National Institute of Health. They're working uh, very closely in concert with the Centers for Disease Control, the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as a number of global health agencies to get us fully prepared for what's to come on the Zika front. We're glad to have Dr. Fauci in that mission. And speaking of health and human services, many people may not be aware of the agency's Office of Civil Rights. Our guest today is Deputy Director of Health Information Privacy in that division. Devin McGraw oversees the protection of patient health privacy data, as well as the adherence of HIPAA regulations, and also oversees the growing abundance of personal health data being generated by apps and wearables, and how people can protect their personal data. Well, Lori Robertson will also be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She looks at misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, remember, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Devin McGraw in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. There's been a surge in coverage in the past years of the number of Latinos gaining coverage under the Affordable Care Act. According to the latest numbers, a third of all newly insured Americans were Hispanic, a sector of the population that has had a disproportionate number of uninsured. It's the single largest share of gained coverage in any demographic group, though they only represent 17 percent of the population. 
And according to analysis done by the New York Times, while the nation's uninsured rate remains high, around 30 million or so, so many low-income residents gained coverage by the end of 2014 that it ended a decades-long growing divide between haves and have-nots in terms of actually having coverage. The uninsured rate remained relatively high due in part to the 19 states that refused to expand Medicaid coverage to those living closer to the poverty line. The nation's health care workforce is made up of roughly 3.4 million nurses, the largest professional group represented in health care. And as frontline care deliverers, they also report a large amount of stress related to their work. According to a recent study, roughly a quarter of all intensive care nurses reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Around 14 percent of their general care nurses reported the same. Experts say adding staff won't be enough. The problem can be linked to poorly managed workflow and active hospital environments that leave nurses no time to detach or even stop for a quick meal during long 12-hour shifts. Nurse burnout is also linked to moral stress, according to the study, from situations where nurses know they should do for their patients, but they just can't act on it. And vaping and teens, the numbers are up, way up. While the numbers of teens smoking traditional cigarettes has steadily dropped in the past decade, there's an alarming trend when it comes to the use of vaping or e-cigarettes. Teen use of these inhalation products has increased tenfold in the past four years, amounting to about 4.7 million kids and teens who use tobacco, the age at which addiction is most likely to take hold. Tobacco industry claims these products aren't as likely to cause harm to health, but the jury is out. The vapor, which contains nicotine, is still an effective delivery system, and some of the compounds shift to toxic substances when turned into vapor. According to the report, if current smoking rates continue, 5.6 million Americans aged 18 alive today are projected to die prematurely from smoking-related illness. E-cigarette sales have exploded to a $3.5 billion a year industry. I'm Ariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Devin McGraw, Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. Ms. McGraw was partner at Manette Phelps and Phillips as the co-chair of privacy, security, and data practice with a focus on IT implementation and health information exchange issues. In 2009, she was appointed by HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius to the Federal Health IT Policy Committee, serving as co-chair of the Privacy and Security Workgroup. Ms. McGraw has served as director of the Center for Democracy and Technology, as well as the CEO of the National Partnership for Women and Families. She earned her master's in public health at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and her law degree from Georgetown School of Law. Welcome, Devin, back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. You know, we've really seen the dramatic change in the landscape for health information technology, and you have a great perch because you have an incredible reputation as the thought leader on the sort of emergent disciplines of health information technology and this unique intersection of HIPAA, patient data, privacy, and the growing use of electronic health records. How have health IT security and patient privacy issues shifted in this era of uh, accelerated adoption and reform? Sure. Well, when I first started doing this work about, (laughs) I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, (laughs) 
you know, really the focus was on um, trying to get healthcare providers, uh, physicians, healthcare professionals, and health plans to be digital, to have electronic medical records, and to um, be able to sort of bring the advances of the digital age into the traditional healthcare system. And we focused a lot on what we might need to do to HIPAA, to, to both strengthen privacy and security protections in this traditional environment, as well as to make sure that information for appropriate purposes like treating patients or securing payment for care or doing research um, would be able to flow. But frankly, the uploading and the sharing of personal health information uh, by consumers using social networking and through mobile apps has almost eclipsed the volume of information um, that gets shared through those traditional routes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not sure that any of us necessarily, except perhaps those who bought stock in some of these companies that were wildly <laughs> successful, could have foreseen that you know some of the most important issues in privacy and security would arise completely outside of the HIPAA ecosystem. I want to maybe help our listeners just with some basic understanding and clarifications sure. first. You have a pretty big uh, directive, leading policy, enforcement, and outreach efforts related to HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules. Uh, as Mark said, certainly an area of growing concern. But maybe let's start with some basic clarification about HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which I think most people assume the P stands for privacy. Uh, but there's still quite a lot of confusion about what it actually requires of clinicians when sharing patient data, and I think equally important, what it doesn't. Maybe clarify what HIPAA is really all about, as well as the recent updates to the regulations issued by your office. Sure. The HIPAA privacy and security rules were really aimed at making sure that the electronic transactions that were really put in place for to support payment for care and to try to build administrative efficiencies into the healthcare system, that those electronic transactions would take place in a private and secure way, you know, recognizing that patient data, whether it's in medical records or claims records, is very sensitive. And so while we were trying to digitize some very common transactions um, in healthcare, we needed to put privacy and security in place. That's really what HIPAA focused on. And so consequently, HIPAA only applies to most healthcare providers who transact business with payers electronically, and then, of course, to contractors who get sensitive health information in order to perform a service for a healthcare provider or a health plan, like, a, like billing, for example, is a common one. So it really had a very narrow focus. HIPAA was also built around the concept that we expect this information to be shared for treatment purposes, and we expect it to be shared for payment, and we expect it to be reportable to um, states or the CDC for public health. And on top of that, there are some basic rights um, that HIPAA provides for individuals whose records are held by HIPAA, like the right to request an amendment or the right to get a copy of your health information. And so oftentimes there's a lot of misinformation about what HIPAA does and doesn't do because people expect that a privacy rule means don't. Mm-hmm. You know, don't share. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, in fact, if you really look at HIPAA and, and sort of see um, what it really says, you'll see that it actually accommodates most of the, of the sharing that healthcare providers need to routinely do to operate their businesses. You know, again, the rights of the individual to get copies of their information is another HIPAA provision that's commonly misunderstood, and it was actually a topic on which we issued a bunch of guidance that's available on our website, fact sheet, and lots and lots of frequently asked questions to try to help 
providers and health plans uh, and the entities that assist them, the business associates, to understand what those obligations are. You know, I wanted to go to another area of concern when it comes to protecting uh, patient data. Increasingly, uh, wearables and tracking devices are producing reams of data. We had Jeff Williams on from uh, Apple, and uh, there's a lot of transformation going on in that space. But much of the data doesn't seem to be protected under HIPAA, and it's also being used by manufacturers in a multi-billion dollar data marketing and mining sector. Could you talk to our listeners about this emerging market of wearable health tracking monitors? What should the consumer be concerned about uh, with their health tracking devices and data they generate? You're right to um, to say that most of these um, wearables and uh, and apps and other um, devices that are marketed directly to consumers are not likely to be covered by HIPAA. So unless these apps or devices are being offered by an entity that is covered under HIPAA, like a health plan might offer you an app to interface with your claims record or a healthcare provider might offer you a way to look at your medical record um, through some sort of app, um, or other consumer-facing device. This doesn't mean that there are no privacy or security protections because um, the Federal Trade Commission has the authority from Congress to crack down on unfair or deceptive practices. This means that the, the FTC can enforce or go after companies that refuse to adhere to the commitments that the company makes to the consumer in the either in the user agreement or in the privacy practices that um, customarily are posted on the app's website. So what I usually advise to consumers is to review the information about how the data is going to be shared by the company that's offering the app, because that's really the source of the protections. Mm. So it's almost really a user or a buyer beware type of environment where the consumer has to decide, you know, what they're willing to uh, tolerate with respect to the uses of data. Oftentimes, these apps or devices might be offered um, to a consumer for free or at a very reduced cost, which could mean that the business model for the app, Mm -hmm. because very rarely do people really get things for free, right? (laughs) Um, The business model for the app is likely that there's some sort of monetization going on of the data. And that really should be explained to the consumer as part of the, again, Uh the user agreement or the license agreement. And that's where your protections are. So that's what you need to look at. Well, let's just follow that out for a minute. Thinking back to our conversation with Jeff Williams talking about Apple HealthKit and Apple Research Kit platforms, and they have very strict adherence to encryption rules for privacy protection. And, you know, you were on our show uh, in the past. It's been a couple of years. But you talked then about the importance of encryption uh, and how you felt at the time, anyway, it was being underutilized in healthcare. So, Maybe uh, two questions. Help us understand what the government might need to do to promote and protect the encryption of health data. And I also would be very curious to hear on that website where you have your fact sheet and all of your information, what are you getting from consumers? I I imagine consumers are hitting that and leaving you questions, and maybe you could tackle both of those. So we think that encryption is a critical security tool. It doesn't protect against all threats, um, but it certainly does protect against um, a good many of them. For entities that are covered by the HIPAA, the security rule, 
requires entities to address encryption. And that means they're supposed to adopt encryption for data that's either stored, uh, commonly referred to as data at rest, or data in transmission. Data in motion is also supposed to be secured through encryption. If encryption is not uh, an appropriate safeguard, then an entity may adopt an alternative safeguard and needs to document why it did not encrypt. We also have under HIPAA in our breach notification requirements um, a safe harbor for entities that adopt encryption standards that are recommended by the National um, Institute for Science and Technology, Uh NIST. So we really push encryption um, uh, fairly aggressively. And in terms of our guidance to consumers, you know, what we have up on our website now, I will admit, is much more geared to our covered entity community. Uh We're actually right now in the process of developing much more consumer-friendly guidance on the right of access, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, We're working with our sister agency at HHS, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, and we hope to have some materials that are really geared toward consumers and much more easy um, for them to understand. We hope to have those out by the summer. We're speaking today with Devin McGraw, Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights. Devin, my God, I'm scared to death every time I listen to the radio and hear hear the story about ransomware, uh, uh, you know, for hospitals totally shut down unless they uh, pay up. So we're seeing this enormous amount of healthcare hacks 250 million records were compromised worldwide in the first half of 2015. And your department is uh, one of many focused on this issue. And you recently said your agency is relatively small in the face of the growing threats. I imagine you're saying that prayer, Lord, uh, the ocean is so large and my boat is so small. Uh, Could you help me? Uh, But talk to our listeners about how your office and other uh, government agencies work together to address these security challenges. We are very aware, of course, of the threats of ransomware. And in fact, we um, we have a listserv that folks can sign up for where we regularly put out information. We have one for privacy and one for security, and we've been using our security listserv to put out alerts on cybersecurity threats. And we had actually sent out um, information on ransomware much earlier this year and started sort of hearing about the attacks that were occurring. It's kind of interesting that we started our conversation today talking about the explosion of healthcare information Mm -hmm. outside of the HIPAA coverage bubble, but really the cyber threats that we're seeing are aimed at the traditional healthcare system where there is, you know, very valuable data. So these cyber hackers are taking full advantage of that. It's the mechanism of ransomware is to essentially wall the information off. And in addition, the way that ransomware works, often that encryption isn't going to prevent the hackers from being able to potentially access that data. HHS also um, recently appointed a healthcare cybersecurity task force. The task force over a year period will provide us with some very important recommendations on how we can do a better job in healthcare uh, of securing uh, what is a very important data resource. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Devin, part of the concern when we think about uh, the public trust with regard to their health data is we, we want and need the public to have that trust uh, because we hope that patients will consider sharing their data for broader research protocols that advance the science and advance our ability to tackle some of our most challenging clinical problems. What are the success stories and uh, certainly, e-prescribing uh, has become the norm across the country. Uh, we've talked with the groups like Patients Like Me and 23andMe. Maybe you could talk with us just a little bit about the pockets where health information is being very effectively shared and utilized to advance larger goals. Yes. Well, we need to provide an environment where people can trust that their information is going to be used appropriately. We also need to make sure that the laws that we put into place to help make information secure still enable us to actually leverage health information for the good. Because privacy and security is not about, you know, just what kind of a lockbox can we create? Can we make that lockbox stronger so that nobody can see this information? The data is not valuable unless it's used to care for people as individual patients and also to contribute to the greater learning um, about what types of treatments and interventions work best and for which populations of people. You really need to have both lots of pockets of, you know, promising work being done on, you know, data collection and exchange. You mentioned a number of them in the patient-centered outcomes research um, Institute and the work that they are are funding uh, is is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of work that the that NIH is funding. Um, the work that's being done, for example, to take the to think about how to use the Sentinel distributed database, which was created for public health surveillance, and another initiative that's really just beginning that our office is actively participating in is the President's Precision Medicine Initiative and the hope to have a Mm -hmm. million-plus people voluntarily contributing their data and biospecimens for research purposes Mm -hmm. in order to, to advance cures, and then, of course, the vice president's initiative on the cancer moonshot. So, so much going on. I mean, it's it's actually a healthy dialogue to have, to be talking both about the need to protect the confidentiality of data and make sure that it's appropriately secured, while in the very same conversation talking about how we can more robustly leverage it for the good. We, we... Speaking about health data and with the advent of electronic health records, I think some of us looked at that at the earlier stage that was sort of the Tower of Babel. It couldn't talk to anybody. And then we sort of thought about interoperability and thought about that as the universal translator. Unfortunately, (laughs) we haven't done such a great job of uh, making that data interoperable. What tools is your office making available to this sector so that innovation they're developing will advance the quest for interoperability? So we have been working very closely with the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, um, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to think about what we can do in order to advance interoperability. And the guidance that we put out on the ability of of an individual to be able to get copies of of her records and have those copies sent directly to any third party that she chooses um, and who just wants to be able to do that herself and upload that information into a mobile app that helps her manage that information and and maybe she's a caregiver either for children or, or also for aging parents. That's really what the guidance that we put out was designed to do. But we also worked with ONC to make clear that HIPAA is not the obstacle. Very often, 
um, entities would say, well, we can't share for treatment purposes because HIPAA will not allow it, or it's not clear to us how how we can um, be able to share information electronically. So we've put out some fact sheets with ONC that you can find either on ONC's website or on ours on how HIPAA permits uses and disclosures for treatment and care coordination for care planning purposes, um, but also the guidance on access because we want to make sure that HIPAA is not the obstacle to sharing. HIPAA is the enabler mm-hmm. uh, to sharing for the right reasons. And to the extent that people have had questions about that or myths about what HIPAA does and doesn't do, we've tried very hard to put out the truth. What HIPAA allows it and under what circumstances and what providers need to do to be able to share with one another um, to, to make this environment much more interoperable. We have been speaking today with Devin McGraw, Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, leading policy, enforcement, and outreach efforts related to HIPAA privacy, security, and breach notification rules. You can learn more about her work by going to hhs.gov OCR, and you can follow her on Twitter at Health Privacy. Devin, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much, Margaret and Mark, both of you. It's really been a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The White House recently published a fact sheet on the threat climate change poses to human health, saying that extreme heat can be expected to cause an increase in the number of premature deaths. But the White House cherry-picked data on the estimated number of those premature deaths. It cited a nationwide model that predicts roughly 11,000 deaths in the year 2030 and more than 20,000 deaths in 2100 from extreme heat exposure compared with the 1990 baseline. But that ignores another model from the same study that predicts significantly fewer premature deaths, 6,950 in 2030 and 19,509 in 2100. The Obama administration also ignored a predicted decrease in the number of premature deaths from extreme cold temperatures. The net number of additional deaths from extreme temperatures in the model cited by the White House are 4,665 in 2030 and 9,632 in the year 2100. That's thousands fewer than what the White House cited. Furthermore, the White House made no mention of future adaptation to extreme heat, which could reduce premature deaths, such as greater accessibility to air conditioning and increased vegetation in cities. The report on climate change and human health was from the U.S. Global Change Research Program, established in 1989. It's made up of research teams from 13 federal departments and agencies. The report explained that U.S. average temperatures had increased since 1895 due to elevated greenhouse gas emissions, and scientists predicted that the trend will continue with a 3-degree Fahrenheit to 10-degree increase in average temperature by 2100. Temperature extremes can lead to a greater number of premature deaths through, through both hyperthermia and hypothermia and by worsening chronic conditions such as cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. Scientists have high confidence that heat deaths will increase in the future, but the White House cherry-picks estimates on such deaths from the more extreme model. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, about 2 million people around the world are suffering from end-stage renal disease or acute kidney failure. There are basically two options for these patients, kidney transplants, which are costly and severely lacking in available donor kidneys, or dialysis, also costly as well as time-consuming, requiring patients to undergo blood filtering treatments at medical facilities, lasting up to five hours per treatment, costing about $90,000 per year. A Montreal teen science project just may pave the way for another solution. Anya Pagarian developed a portable home dialysis kit that cost about $500 to produce, far less than the $30,000 dialysis machines currently in use. Her idea, inspired by her high school internship, working at a dialysis center in Montreal. You wouldn't have to make your way to the hospital, which is a problem for a lot of patients. Um, It's not necessarily easy to go three times a week to the hospital especially if you have maybe limited mobility. Pogarian says hundreds of hours of research led her to build a prototype of the dialysis machine, which is about the size of a typical game board, but pumps and purifies blood just as large-scale dialysis machines do. Her invention has earned her numerous awards and scholarships and the attention of one of Canada's key hematology labs, now supporting her continued research. She hopes this device can be developed throughout the world, especially third world countries, where a significant percentage of the population doesn't have access to either transplant surgery or dialysis, leading to early deaths of those patients. 10% of patients living in India and Pakistan who need the treatment cannot afford it or can't have it in any way. It's not accessible. So that's really what motivated me to continue. A relatively cheap, portable, easily assembled dialysis machine that could alleviate the cost and treatment hurdles of ongoing dialysis, keeping patients healthier longer, allowing them to be treated at home. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.